if you've been with us uh, for the past, this is now part eight. So if you've been with us for the better part of two months, we've been going through this same series um, called The Worst Sermon Ever and what we can learn from The Worst Sermon Ever, which is essentially a Bible study sort of sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going through it, and this sermon series has officially gone long enough to the point where I will no longer be recapping the entire series up until this point, because if I did, we would run out of time entirely. But, but I do want to recap the last two weeks. So if you've joined us for parts seven and six, and if you've missed any of the previous parts, I'd like to direct you to our Rock Fellowship podcast, a plug we have not done in a while. But all of our sermons are online at Rock Fellowship SDA or whatever you find podcasts at Rock Fellowship. So if you haven't and you feel like you're missing out after this sermon, you feel like, what is he talking about if he's, if he's referencing some other stuff, feel free to check us out online. You can catch all of our previous messages there. But the last two weeks actually hold a little bit of relevance to this week's message, which is a study in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. So I just want to give a quick recap over last week and the week before his message, which was kind of almost like a mini-series within the series. The last two weeks dealt primarily with your money and your wealth and how you handle it. And the two questions that Pastor Chris had us ask were, one, what good is money? In other words, what is the correct way to use money? What is money? What is the function of money in your life? And two, we rephrase that as, where is my money? In other words, is your money being used and stewarded under the sun in a worldly matter or above the sun with God and spirituality and heaven in mind? And the two ways that we talked about last week that we can live and manage our lives above the sun in a godly manner was A, grip it loosely. Have a loose grip on your, on your money and B, pass it on intentionally. And the reason these things were true and the reason these things we believe are, are in response to godly wisdom is that Pastor Chris reminded us that every single person here at some point in their life will lose all of their money. Most of us in death, hopefully not before, but in death, you lose everything you own. You cannot take any of your wealth, your possessions, your bank accounts, statement with you into the grave. So when you die, you will lose everything. You don't even know when that is. So because of that, Grip your money loosely and pass it on intentionally. This week, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We're chugging along here. And this week is a, is a part in this series that I'm very excited to preach about because for me, it has changed the way I viewed my life. And for me, especially over the past few months, I've found that the message in Ecclesiastes chapter 6 has been one that pertained to my life particularly. And if there's anyone here sitting or listening or watching us online that feels a sense of dissatisfaction with their life, you feel like, if I were to ask you, how is your life? Are you satisfied with your life? Are you happy with the life that you have? Are you happy with who you are? And you answer no or I'm not sure, then this message is for you. But before going to the word, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you so much for the Sabbath and the fact that we can come together and worship you and praise your name and listen to your word, Father. Lord, as I speak and as I read from your word, Father, I ask that at this time, Lord, um, as we just sang, and this is our prayer, Lord, may your will be done on earth, Lord. May your will be done in rock fellowship and through this word as it is done in heaven, Father. Lord, you know who needs to hear this message, Father. You know whose hearts will be changed because of this, Lord. So we ask that you soften hearts, you open our minds, you free us from discretions, anything that will keep us from hearing your voice today. I praise this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. So I just want to start just by reading the first few verses. In Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 2 to 6, we're going to have it on the screen for you guys here. And um, this is in the New American Standard Version. It's a little bit of a clunkier, more literal translation, but there's a reason for this because there are a few phrases that I think are very key. They'll go to in a little bit. So Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 2 through 6. I'll be reading it. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is widespread among mankind. Again, this is the teacher making an observation here, an evil that I've seen under the sun and is widespread among mankind, a person to whom God has given riches, wealth, and honors so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God has not given him the opportunity to enjoy these things, but a foreigner enjoys them. This is futility and a severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he, for a miscarriage comes in futility and goes in darkness, and its name is covered in darkness. It has not even seen the sun, nor does it know it, yet it is better off than that man. Even if the man lives a thousand years twice, but does not see good things, do all go to one place, one and the same place. This is the opening statement. And again, like many chapters in Ecclesiastes, the, the teacher begins with this observation. I have noticed this thing about life, and generally a fairly dark and grim observation. The observation that this teacher is making is he's saying he's giving two examples of people, but he's making the same point using these two examples. An example of someone that has everything they could possibly want. I mean, the first man has wealth and honor, and it, the teacher says he has everything that his soul desires, yet he's not pleased. He does not enjoy these things, and instead someone else does. And the second person, right, is someone that lives a very long life and has a lot of children, which, depending on who you are today, is not necessarily the standard of of what you really want in your life. But again, especially in those days with limited medical technology and, and limited birth control, the, the number of children that you had and the amount of how long you lived was a direct correlation to how blessed God has blessed you, how blessed you were by God. If you had a lot of children, a huge family, you must have been blessed by God because that was an aspect that was largely out of your control. If you lived a very, very long life and lived to an old age and got to see your children grow up, you must have been blessed by God because how long you live is largely out of your control. So he's basically painting these two hypothetical examples of look at these two people that have everything you could ever want, but for whatever reason, they don't know it. They don't enjoy the things that they have. And then he makes this very gruesome comparison, right, to the second person that lives a long life and has many children. He says, look, this man has everything that someone in the ancient world and his audience would have wanted, many children and a long life. And he compares that person's life to the life of a stillborn child, the life of a child that has never really experienced life. And I was, as I was reading this, and again, he opens with, with the statement that there is an evil that I have seen under the sun. And depending on which translation you read, it's... Some, some of them say, I've seen a gruesome, a terrible atrocity occur under the sun. And he describes these two people that essentially have everything you could ever want, that live by most standards an enviable life, but they don't know it. And as I read this passage, I was a little confused, to be honest, because I don't know about you, but I could think of a lot worse things in life than someone that has everything they want but doesn't enjoy it. I mean, in a way, we have a word for that in society today. We call someone like that spoiled, right? And is someone that is spoiled, is that such 
a big tragedy. A few chapters ago, he talked about someone that dies alone with nobody next to them. That is a tragedy. He talked about the futility of pleasure and how meaningless life can be if you live your life according to lies. That, that is tragedy. But someone, and to use modern standards, someone that's super rich, super talented, super smart, super athletic, super sociable, but doesn't realize that they are blessed, and they live their life not knowing that they're blessed? I don't know. I just, as I was reading this, it bothered me because I didn't really think that was that big of a deal. I don't really feel that bad for that person that has everything that they could ever want. Just, they just don't know that they have everything that they could ever want. Is that really, I don't know, I felt like the, the description he made, that this is an evil under the sun, that that person's life is akin to a stillborn child, that it seemed a little bit harsh to me, to be honest. And as I was reading this and trying to study, like, God, what are you trying to say? It bothered me a lot because I guess I could try to like upplay how bad this is, but to be honest, I don't know, I didn't, it didn't evoke a lot of sympathy for me for this man that he described. How much sympathy do you really have for a spoiled child that doesn't realize that they have everything they could want in life? But then as I try to put myself in the shoes of the teacher, I try to flip the script, right? Imagine he's describing your child or he's describing your life, right? That you are living a life where you have everything you could ever want. You have everything in your power. You currently own and possess and are. You have everything you could want to live a fulfilling, satisfying, perfect life. You just don't know it. Wouldn't you want, and you lived your entire life not knowing that. You lived your entire life thinking, I'm not that blessed. I don't have very much. I need more. This is not enough. You lived your entire life, and then you died, never really realizing that actually you had everything you needed to live a perfect life. Wouldn't that actually be a tragedy? And I thought about it, that when I generalized this concept, what the teacher is essentially saying is that it's very tragic when someone doesn't realize how blessed they are by God and they go through life feeling very unsatisfied with a life that they should have been very content with. And really, in in a word, that's what the teacher is trying to say, right? Be content with your life. You should strive to find contentment and satisfaction with your life with what you have. But it still, for me, begged the question, yes, count your blessings, be thankful, that's good. And you know, in a few months, we'll really hammer it on that. In the end of November, we should be thankful, we should count our blessings, and we'll eat delicious food. But why is that, why does he speak so harshly? Again, he makes the comparison, the more, I, there must be more that I must have been missing something, because he talks about that person, that if you live life that way, if you live life not realizing how blessed you are and realizing that you have so many things to be thankful for, it's like the same thing. Your quality of life is the same as a baby that never experienced life at all. You essentially have the same quality of life as a dead person or someone that never really got to live. And so the question became, what is he really warning against? Why is this such a harsh and strong warning? Is it really that big of a deal to just not be grateful for everything that you have in your life? Is this really that big of a tragedy? And what causes someone to live a life like this? What causes you or me to go through life feeling dissatisfied and feeling that what you have is not enough? And I feel like the reason that you and I, I'm afraid to ask you this question, right? And maybe right now, let's all take a second. Just answer this question for yourself. Right now, your life right now, what you have, who you are as a person, are you satisfied with your life? Are you content with who you are and what you have? 
And depending on how you answer that question, you have to be able to answer why. If you are satisfied, why are you satisfied? What are the things that you place value in in your life that bring you satisfaction? And if you're not satisfied with your life, you look at who you are, what you have, who you've become up until this point in your life, and you feel like, no, I'm not satisfied with who I am, then you also need to be asked the question, why? Why are you not satisfied? What do you feel like you're missing? Because at the end of the day, what this ties into is this, this idea, I feel like, that all of us succumb to at some point in our lives that we are not content with our lives, we are not satisfied with our lives because we need, we need more. And for some of us, if you feel discontent, you feel like there's an aspect of your life that you feel like you don't have enough, and that's why you're not happy. Whatever that enough is for you, you feel like you need more. And to be honest, it's especially bad for us in today's day and age because one of the Ten Commandments, and one that I always thought was a little bit weird that God included, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, um, this is when God gives essentially the ten fundamental rules that the children of Israel should live by. One of them he includes in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, that you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or your male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Basically, don't look at someone else's life and be like, I want that. That's a command, and that's sandwiched in between don't kill people, don't lie, don't commit adultery. He includes this in there, that don't live life wanting and desiring and comparing your life to your neighbor, the person next to you. And again, this, for me, this always seemed a bit, yeah, that's probably good advice, but is it that bad to do so? But for today, in our day and age, this is like 10 times worse, and we're 10 times more likely to succumb to this temptation because... For the children of Israel, the ancient Israelites in those days, the people that actually received these Ten Commandments from God, they were comparing their life to their literal, like the guy three-tenths down, right? You walk out and you see your neighbor's new ox and he's got bulging muscles and a new plow and he's plowing his field and you're like, oh my goodness, my ox sucks. I need a new cow. He's got the latest plow model. Oh my goodness. Have you seen like the thing he's breaking? And so you look at literally the person next to you, right? And you live in generally a smaller society. But the problem with us in today's day and age, thanks to the technology of media, is that you can do that same thing with a person that you will never meet. You can compare your house to someone living in a different state and allow that person's house to make your house feel that this is not enough. You can compare your car with someone that lives in a different country, a car that you aren't even able to purchase in your own country, and you can feel like, dang, my car is not enough because of this person's car. You can compare your vacation, your lifestyle, the way you live with someone that doesn't even speak your language and allow that person to make you feel that your life is not enough. I mean, really, because of this technology of media, it's, the floodgates have really opened for us to take this command and run with it, the warning that God gives of thou shalt not covet. And it's so much easier for us to live our life and fall victim to this, to, to look at somebody else's life, to look at their more, their better, their newer, their faster, their more expensive, their more exclusive thing, and feel like my life is not enough because I want what they have. And me looking at what they have makes me feel like this aspect of my life is inadequate, is insufficient, or even worse, that I as a person am inadequate, am insignificant, am insufficient. I need more because of what someone else has. And it's a very dangerous way. And what the teacher is saying is when you fall victim to that 
that mindset, that lifestyle, it will lead to your literal death. And when you and I live our lives driven by a desire to satisfy that need for more and a mindset that the life that we have, it's, it's just not good enough, the teacher says that what ends up happening is we start to live like we are dead and we don't actually get to live our life, that we are not truly living. And to be honest, this, this feeling, and I imagine that almost everyone in this room or anyone listening has felt this at some point in their life, but this feeling, this, this bad habit of ours is deeply rooted in human history. Actually, it goes back to the very, very first humans, like season one of humanity, the first story arc of humans ever revolves in part around this conflict. And if you know the story of the Bible, in Genesis chapter one and two, God creates this perfect earth, Eden, heaven on earth, no sin, it's perfect. And there are two humans, Adam and Eve, that live on there and they walk right with God. They have a perfect relationship with God and by all accounts and purposes, they have everything they could ever want. They were in paradise, perfection. And again, we don't exactly, there are probably several different factors that went into the decision that ended up with the fall of man and Eve being deceived. And there are a few different factors, I'm sure. The fact that, you know, Eve and Adam were separated and they didn't have each other. And the fact that the serpent was very cunning and very intelligent. The fact that the fruit, whatever this means, looked very aesthetically pleasing. But I feel like one of the most important factors in what led to Eve's decision, and I think it's part of the genius of the sales pitch that the serpent makes, is this. When you read Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, we'll have it on the screen, you hear what the serpent says to Eve. This is what he says. This is how he convinces Eve. This is his sales pitch. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The first part of this pitch, that you will not certainly die, is Satan presenting Eve with the half-truth. Right? Eve was under the impression that if I eat this fruit, I will die. And in her mind, the interpretation seems to be like instantly, right away. And Satan hits her with that half-truth. You won't surely die. You'll be okay. And, you know, there's that. But the, I think it's the second part of this sales pitch that really evokes this, this deep sense of, for Eve, must have been inadequacy. Because what he tells her is, God knows that if you eat from this fruit you will gain a wisdom like that of God, and you will become like God. This is the subtle pitch and the lie that Satan tells Eve. A, this paradise you have on earth, it's not enough. You, you can eat from any tree but this tree. Don't you want to be able to eat from all of the trees? And B, who you are as a person, like you, you are not enough. You know what you need? You know what you're lacking? You're lacking the wisdom that this tree can offer you. You're lacking the discernment between good and evil that this tree can give to you. And essentially, the two lies, the two lies that the serpent gives to Eve, the two lies are that you, you are not enough. And B, you don't have enough. He takes Eve, who is in a perfect world, and convinces her that actually this Garden of Eden, this paradise, this sinless, amazing life that you have, it's not enough. And actually, you're missing something. You need more. It's not enough that you can eat from every tree in the garden. You can't eat from this one. Don't you want to be able to eat from all 
of the trees. It's not enough that you and Adam are the epitome of perfect humanity and that you get to walk with God and be intimately known by God and loved by God. Don't you want to be God? Don't you want to have the same attributes as God himself? And it works. And again, we don't know if this is the only reason why. There are probably a couple of different reasons. But I feel like a big part of the pitch and the big part of the lie that Eve ate when she ate the fruit was, yeah, my life here, I don't have enough. This paradise that God, I'm not satisfied. I'm not happy with the life that I have right now. I need more. And I'm sure she found out right away the consequences and the regret that followed after that. But honestly, if you think about it and you go even further back, it makes sense that Satan would make such an amazing pitch about this because if you go further back and given our Adventist perspective of the great controversy and how the world and the conflict between good and evil even began, all of this, the introduction of sin begins with Lucifer in heaven, the morning star looking around, the greatest created being ever, the most beautiful, intelligent of all created beings looking around and feeling that he was not enough. It's not enough that I am the greatest created being ever and that I'm charismatic and beautiful and intelligent and have authority. I want more. I want to be God. It's not enough that I was the, the greatest thing God has ever created. I want to be the creator himself. And that thought, that feeling, that, that mindset, his perspective on life led him to rebel against humanity, to convince people to join his cause and introduce the very concept of sin and death and destruction itself here on earth. That he was in heaven, constantly in the presence of God, was beautiful, perfect, intelligent, and he looked around and he felt, this, this is not enough. I, I need more. I'm not happy with the life that I have. I'm not happy just being an angel. I'm not happy just being in heaven. I want to rule heaven. I want to create. I want to be the creator himself. And the very origin of sin, death, and destruction came from that very desire of I need more. This, this life, who I am as a person, this is not enough. I'm not happy with this. To go back to Adam and Eve and, and the serpent's pitch, to Eve, and this is why I feel like this, this matters for you and me today. And when I took this into perspective and I started connecting those thoughts of, oh, well, where have I seen this theme before? It sort of started to make sense as to why this teacher spoke so harshly against this. The origins of this feeling, the origins of this mindset towards life are very, very, very dark. And really, this feeling is the origin of death and sin and destruction in and of itself. But to go back to Adam and Eve, the important thing to remember is that the pitch that the serpent makes to Adam, to Adam and Eve, right, that this is not enough, that you need more, it's important to clarify that was a lie. It was flat out a lie. And I'm sure Eve realized this moments after she bit into the fruit, that actually she didn't need to eat the fruit. She didn't need to be like God. She didn't need to be able to eat from every tree in the garden. The life that she had was perfect just the way that it was, she just didn't realize it until after she acted on that lie. And for you and for me today, in America in 2021, that's why this matters for us. Because the truth, the reality, was that Adam and Eve, they had enough. They had more than enough. Their lives were perfect just the way that they were. But because they believed in a lie, 
that distorted their view of reality. And because they believed in that lie, they took actions, they made life decisions based off the lie that what they had wasn't enough. And because they believed in the lie and acted on that lie, it led to death and regret. And that's why what the teacher is talking about here matters for you and for me. Because if you live life and your actions and your decisions and your purchases and, and the words that you say and the actions you take are guided and according to the, to the understanding that your life is not enough and that you don't have enough and that you need more and you live according to those principles and you live according to that lie and you make decisions based on that, you will live a life full of regrets and you will die, as a teacher compares to, you will die not having truly ever lived at all. In the example of Adam and Eve, for you and me, it's possible that right now, you have everything you need to live a satisfied, fulfilled, happy, content life, and you're throwing it all away in the pursuit of more and better and newer and more exclusive and more expensive. And depending on who you are, one of the two may be bigger struggle. For some of us, the struggle may be that I feel like I don't have enough. Remember, the two lies that the serpent gives to Eve are A, you are not enough, and B, you don't have enough. The things that you own, the things that you're able to do, the possessions you have are insignificant, and who you are as a person, your worth and value and your abilities and your talents, not enough, right? You're, you're insufficient in both. And depending on who you are, one may, have, may be a bigger struggle for you than the other. Maybe for some of us, we struggle with, I feel like I don't have enough, right? I look at my life and I see my possessions, the number, my bank account, my assets, the, the, the life that I have, the things that I own, and I feel like I'm not happy. This is not enough. I need the accumulation of more. And this stems from the mindset that because you do not have enough, that you need more. And that when you get more, the lie that this feeds into you is that when you get more, then you will have enough. But the problem with that is that that's not true, that if you live your life feeling that you don't have enough, and you take actions to get more and better, and you feel like once I get more, once I get better, once I get bigger, then I'll be satisfied, that's not true, because if that were true, 90% of the companies on earth would be out of business. If you bought the latest iPhone today, you bought an iPhone 14, and you felt like this iPhone is it, I don't need another phone ever, this is a perfect phone. I will never buy another phone. This is everything I ever need. And you proceeded to never buy a new phone. In fact, you constantly, even when the iPhone 20 and 30 came out, you just kept buying the iPhone 14. Every company, Apple would go out of business if everyone started doing that. And the reality is that so much of life and business and the way the world is structured is based around feeding you this, this lie that you don't, you don't have enough. You know what would help though? If you got more, if you got the newer version, the more exclusive, the more expensive, that will satisfy your desire. That will make you truly happy. But the problem is, you don't need to spell it out very long to realize that is a never-ending cycle. There's no way. That's an endless loop of constant unhappiness and, and hunger and needing more. With that mindset, there's never enough, but there is always more. And it's a terrible, torturous way to live your life. On the flip side, if you struggle a little bit more with who you are, with your identity and your sense of self, and you feel like I just, you, your life and your actions stem from a sense of insecurity, that I as a person am not enough. My abilities, my view of myself 
my view compared and relative to other people, it's just too low. I'm not that worthy and valuable of a person. This is very important for you to know. And I thought about the best analogy that I can think of. And if you are a student and you've never sold a house, this is, I'm going to explain something to you. I, I've never sold one, but I did some reason. I figured this is how it's done. If you feel like you struggle with a sense of self, let me remind you of a concept in economics. Again, this is for you that you feel like your value is not high, and you feel like you as a person, your sense of self is not high. In economics, and when it comes to the world of market and selling things, the owner of an asset does not get to determine the value of the asset. The value of the asset is determined by what someone else is willing to pay for that asset. So, for instance, your home, if you own a home, and it's your home, and you've paid it off, and you are looking to sell your home, technically, it doesn't really matter what you list the home price at. It matters what someone else is willing to pay for it. Even though it's your house, you don't really get to determine the value of your home. For instance, you could list your home for $2 billion. And you might think it's worth $2 billion, but if no one is willing to pay $2 billion, your house is not worth $2 billion. If the most someone is willing to pay for your house is $500,000, then your house is worth $500,000. Irrelevant of how you feel, irrelevant of whatever value you have, if that's all someone is willing to pay for that house, that's all that house is worth. On the flip side, if you list that same house and you hate the house, it's terrible. You have terrible memories there. You just want to get out of it. You list it for $5,000. But at least two people are willing to pay more than $5,000 for that house. Your house is not worth $5,000, despite how you may feel about it. And the reality of this, and this is like a powerful reminder of, of again, when it comes to your self-worth, again, even though it's your house and you own it, you don't necessarily get to determine the value of your own house it's based off what someone else is willing to pay for that house. The highest price that someone else is willing to pay for that house is the actual value of that house. On the flip side, and I say this respectfully and gently, it may be possible that you are not the bright person to set a value on your own life. For you, if you feel like, I am not worth much at all, and, you know, I... I, I'm insignificant, I don't have talents, and I have low self-esteem, and, and a lot of your life stems from your sense of insecurity, of how you're lesser than and how you're not worth. Might I suggest that you have bought into a lie and that actually you don't really even get to value the price and the cost and the worth of your own life or soul because that is determined by the highest price that someone is willing to pay for your soul and your life. And the crazy part of that is this. And again, I say this respectfully and gently, and I don't mean to, to pry into your life, but if you have a very low sense of, and you feel like, I am not worth anything. I am not worthy of love, of affection. I'm not talented. I, I don't have these certain attributes and traits. I don't see myself very highly. And you list your house for $5,000, but someone is willing to pay half a million dollars for your house the reality is, that's what your house is worth. And the last time I checked, the current trading price of a human soul, the price to redeem a human being of a soul, was the life of God himself. And that technically, the crazy part of this valuation, that when God paid the life of his own son for you, he made that valuation taking into account the lowest point of your life. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 8, this is how God quotes this price for you. That God demonstrates his own love for this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That when God looked at your life, he looked at the scope of everything you will ever do. Any thought you will ever have, any action you will ever say. And he found the lowest point that while you were still wallowing in sin, that while you're still prodigal, that we're still living your life out in the world, before, way before you decided to give your life to God, he looked at that version of yourself and said, The price I'm willing to pay for that person living in sin far away from me is the price of my own son's life. That is the value I place on you. And that's why living your life from a perspective of inadequacy and insufficiency, that I am not enough, is a lie. Because getting more things will never satisfy your soul for more. And the value of your life was determined 2,000 years ago when Jesus paid for your soul with his own life. The objective truth, according to the Christian perspective, is that you on your own, as a sinner, you are worth enough. I want to conclude by talking about an example of, okay, if that is true, how can I actually internalize that and use that in my own life? And I want to say that by, I, I intentionally made this passage in Ecclesiastes 6 in, in, in a more literal translation because one of the things that the teacher says in criticizing this man that has everything that he has is he says, even if the man lives a thousand years twice but does not see good things, do not all go to one in the same place. And that phrase, does not see good things, is translated in a number of different ways, but this is what I found to be the most literal translation of that phrase. If someone lives a very blessed life but does not see good things, that's the phrase that the teacher actually uses, do not all go to one in the same phrase. And it's kind of a weird phrase in English. It's not a, a term that we normally use. But when you look at the original language in Hebrew and you look at where that word, see good things, good things, that word tov in Hebrew, you look at where else that's found in the Bible, you get an idea of what God means when he's talking about this. Because the first time this word is found in the Bible is in the first chapter of the Bible. At, every, at the end of every day of creation, where God looks at what he has created and says, this, this is tov, this is good. The problem, the reason that's interesting is because for me, at least as a non-artist and as a human, when I look at each day of creation, it feels very lacking. The first day of creation, all God created was light. There is no light source. The sun, moon, and stars come way later in the day. All he created was light. And God looked at just light and said, this, this in and of itself, just light, this is enough. In fact, this is good. This is pleasing to me. This is enough. I don't need anything more. For day one of creation, all we need is light. On the second day, all he did was separate sky and sea. That's it. As far as any definition of the earth is concerned, it's really not that different from before creation. It's still barren. There's no life. But God looks at just that, the separation of sky and sea, and he says, this, for day two of creation, this is good. This is enough. I don't need anything more. I don't need anything less. As it is, this is enough. And the reality is, if you look at how creation plays out, it's not that God ran out of energy, and all that he could do was, oh, I just have energy to make this one thing today. Because as you look at the flow of the creation story, there are days where God does much more, and God, days where God does much less. A day where he makes, he populates the entire land with animals and life, 
and a day where he just creates one human being. And so there's this, this idea where God demonstrates, where he looks at something that by human standards doesn't seem like much, doesn't seem like enough. But God looks at this one thing that is created, as incomplete as it may be, and says this in and of itself is tov, and it's enough. And there are a few questions that I want to leave you guys with that you can ask yourself this week. And really my hope as I was preparing this message and what I did myself as I was studying this passage is I asked these questions about myself and I looked at areas of my life that I felt insufficient in. I looked at areas of my life that I would answer that I am not satisfied in, that I feel like I need more, I need to do more, I need to accumulate more in. And I asked myself these three questions of the sermon and I want to leave them to you in the hopes that perhaps you can use them sometime this week in a devotional, in a time of prayer with Scripture, with God. The first question is, when you come to an area of your life that you feel like you don't have enough in, or you aren't enough in, whether it's an ability or, or a material wealth, the first question is, is it true? Is it true that you don't have enough? Is it true that you aren't enough? Whatever that area is, is it true that your house isn't big enough? Is it true that your car isn't nice enough? Is it true that the clothes you wear aren't good enough? Is it true that you aren't smart enough? Is it true that you aren't talented enough? And if that's true, the second question to ask then, if you can even answer that question, is what is enough? How can you, what is the finite amount that you would have that would make it enough and enough to satisfy your soul? Right? What, if, if it is true that your house or your car or the, the, the number in your bank account is not enough, if it's true that your talents as a musician or an athlete or a student, if it's not enough, then what is enough? And if you can't answer that question, then it's, then it's based on a lie. That there's no point in going further. But if you can answer that question, if you can answer that it's true, it's not enough, if you can answer the question of what enough is, then you must end by answering this third question of why is that enough? If it's true that whatever you have or whoever you are is not enough and you can define a finite amount that would be enough, the question you must ask yourself is why is that enough? And why would that bring you satisfaction as opposed to where you are now? And to clarify, and I clarify this because this came up on a youth Sabbath school, there is a difference between striving for excellence and doing your best and living a life motivated by a sense of not having enough. The point of this sermon isn't that we should all just stop everything we're doing, stop showing up to work, stop trying to do our best, stop you know, practicing our instruments or studying and doing our homework. That's not the point. The point is that you may have everything you need to live a satisfied, content life where you have enough and you are enough, and it's possible that by not realizing it, you're throwing all of that away in the pursuit of something you don't even need. Not only do you not need it, but pursuing that constant more will actually bring death and destruction and regret to your life. And the promise of God, and we'll end with this passage, and to, to use the words that Jesus gave in his ministry on earth in John chapter 10, he says, a thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, as shown with the serpent in the garden, as shown with Lucifer in heaven. But I, this is Jesus speaking, have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The promise and desire of God in your life, what God wants for you, God wants for you to live your life according to the truth, and that when you do, that you will be satisfied and happy and content with your life. God doesn't want you to live a life where you're constantly dissatisfied and unhappy and disgruntled. His will for you 
is that by teaching you and showing you the truth, you can live a life of satisfaction and joy and content where you lack nothing and your soul is satisfied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it's so, as I preach this message and even as we just heard this message, Lord, it's still so easy for us to fall to that lie that we are not enough and that we don't have enough and that we don't do enough. Lord, it's so easy for us to turn to our neighbor and feel that, that envy, that covetous desire within us that if we just had what they had, if we just did what they did, if we just were who they were, then we would be enough, Lord. My prayer is that as we leave this place, that these words remain in our hearts, that you have deemed that we are enough, that you have placed value in our own lives, not because of something we did or didn't do, because of who you are and the price that you paid for us. Father, may we live with that peace and that truth in our lives and stop living by the lie that Satan has placed in our hearts, Lord. May we find satisfaction in our souls by living in you and realizing the blessings, the immense blessings that you have poured in our lives. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.